three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Magic and Mormonism. This past Saturday, January 22nd, 2022, was a seminal event in the history of Thrive. Now, Thrive is an organization to help support those who are transitioning out of Mormonism. The idea behind the name is to show that leaving Mormonism is not necessarily a dead end, even though leaders of the church would want the members to believe that. But actually, people can and do thrive after Mormonism. And that's what the whole purpose of these meetings is, to have a place for people to come together who are transitioning away from Mormonism, to meet other like-minded people, and to recognize and be encouraged in the fact that, yes, Virginia, members of the church can thrive after Mormonism. This past Saturday, January 22nd, was a seminal event in that, while there have been prior Thrive meetings, such as the one in November of last year, 2021, in Salt Lake City, where I was fortunate enough to be invited to not only attend, but to present at that Thrive conference in Salt Lake City. This past Saturday was the first time that there was a worldwide Thrive event. And by that, I mean that people from around the world were all attending their own Thrive events with their own set of speakers and agendas, but all with the same overarching theme of Thrive. I was invited to present at the Seattle Thrive event last Saturday, which I did in the afternoon. But on top of that, I was also asked to present at the London Thrive happening the same day. Now, as it turns out, London is eight hours ahead of my time zone. So in order to present there at three o'clock in the afternoon in London, I had to come to the underground bunker at seven o'clock in the morning on Saturday to present there, which I did over Zoom. And I had a great time doing that. And as fate would have it, I then drove to Seattle where I presented at three o'clock in the afternoon, my time. With the result that on the same day, January 22nd, I presented in London at 3 o'clock p.m. And then eight hours later, I presented in Seattle at 3 o'clock p.m. The subject I chose to present on was Magic and Mormonism. And that is the title of tonight's episode. A couple of years ago, I did a podcast dealing with magic and the Book of Mormon. And it had to do with a certain magic trick that I used to perform and which indeed I did perform at Seattle Thrive for the audience assembled of around 50 to 60 people. The idea behind the trick is that you present a dime, which is borrowed from a member of the audience, and a napkin, which was readily available, and also a salt shaker. And what I do is this. I announce to the audience that I am going to make the dime go through a table. I am seated at a table where other people are sitting as well. And in this Thrive presentation, almost everybody was on the other side of the table from me, which is where I want them to be in order to perform the trick. But there were some other people who were over here to my sides as well, which is not optimal for the performance of this trick. But as I announced to the audience, the great thing about the fact that I'm going to tell them how this trick is done at the end of it means that I don't have to worry as much as I normally would if people are on the sides and seeing how it's done when I perform it. So after announcing that I'm going to make the dime go through the table, I say that, of course, it's not going to happen out in full vision, but that the dime is somewhat shy. And so I have to put the salt shaker over the dime. So the dime is on the table, well away from the edges of the table, by the way. 
I put the salt shaker over the dime and then I take the napkin and put it over the salt shaker, hold the salt shaker through the napkin. In my left hand, while I circle my right hand over the top of the salt shaker. Now once again, this is the dime on the table, the salt shaker over it, and the napkin over the salt shaker, and my left hand holding the salt shaker through the napkin. Hopefully you can get a mental image for what's going on here. I then circle my right hand over the salt shaker three times and I count one, two, three. I snap my fingers and I tap the salt shaker on the top through the napkin. I lift up the salt shaker and lo and behold, the dime is still there. It has not gone through the table. I hold the dime up. I express some chagrin over the fact that it did not go through the table. I put it once again on the table, put the napkin holding the salt shaker over it, circle my hands three times, snap my fingers, hit the top of the salt shaker, pull it away, and now the dime is still there. So twice I have failed. I hold up the dime. I wonder what is going on. Is it me? Is it the dime? But obviously something is not working because the dime has not gone through the table. So we give it a third time. And of course the third time is the charm. I put the salt shaker back over the dime, circle my hand three times. I smack the top of the salt shaker and the napkin which is what has been holding the salt shaker, now goes directly down to the table. The salt shaker has vanished. I pull away the napkin. The dime is still there. And I realize, oh, it wasn't the dime that went through the table. It was the salt shaker that went through the table. And I reach under the table, directly under the dime, and I pull the salt shaker through the table and bring it out on top of the table and set it down. And everything can be Examined. This went over really well for the audience. I was glad that I haven't lost my knack, apparently. And the thing that made me the happiest is that people on the side, people who were in a position that they actually could see what it was that I was doing, nevertheless did not see what I was doing. They didn't see how I did it. And I will tell you that nothing makes a magician happier than having people who should be able to see how you did it, nevertheless not be able to see how you did it, which means you did a good job in performing that trick. I then showed the audience that actually what I was doing was misdirecting them. It was never about the dime. The dime was never going to go through the table. It was always going to be the salt shaker that went through the table. But I don't want to tell the audience that it's the salt shaker through the table trick because then they'll be watching the salt shaker to see what I do with it. Because I'm focusing on the dime and only the dime, they're not really looking at the salt shaker which I'm holding in my left hand through the napkin. And it is largely because of this misdirection on my part that the audience was so fooled when the dime did not go through the table, but actually it was the salt shaker that went through the table. Now obviously it's much more miraculous for a big salt shaker to go through the table than a tiny dime, which is one of the reasons that this trick is so good. And it was this trick that made me start thinking about the translation process of Joseph Smith. Because as we now know, at least those of us who have been paying attention and those of us who have read the church essay on the translation of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon not by looking at the plates, but instead by looking at his seer stone. And his seer stone was not out in the open. It was in the bottom of his white stovepipe hat. And all the witnesses were agreed that when Joseph Smith put the stone in his white stovepipe hat, that he would put his face over the hat and then a supernatural or divine light of some sort would emanate from the stone. And in that divine emanation of light, Joseph Smith saw the characters from the plates and also saw the English translation of those characters, which he would then read to the scribe, have it written down and then read back to him. And then if it were correct, he would say it was correct and he would go on to the next segment 
of translation. In spite of the fact that the church seemed to become somewhat remiss in mentioning the actual translation method over the years, the witnesses had no problem with it and quite readily recounted how it was that the translation was actually performed with the stone in the hat. And they were very sure that this stone had magical properties or divine properties, supernatural properties, at least for Joseph Smith, and that he could see things in this stone that other people could not and that were otherwise not readily seeable by the human eye, hence the title seer stone. And I started thinking about this method of translation, how it's the stone that's magic, and it gets put in the hat so that Joseph Smith can then focus on it and have it in a more darkened atmosphere to see the divine light emanating from it. And comparing it with this salt shaker and dime through the table trick, because it was never about the dime, it was always about the salt shaker. And I began to wonder, with Joseph Smith and the translation process, is the same kind of thing going on? Is it really about the stone where all the focus is, or is it about the hat? And I started to think, really, this is just a stone. It's a rock. There's nothing special about it. It really does not operate as a 19th century equivalent of the modern iPhone. And if that's the case, if it's just a stone with no magical properties, even when Joseph Smith is using it, then maybe, just maybe, the translation process was really never about the stone. It was always about the hat. Just as my trick with the dime through the table was never about the dime, it was always about the salt shaker. Because as long as you have your audience thinking that the trick is really about one aspect and not about the other aspect, then they're going to focus on the one aspect and largely ignore the other aspect. And when that happens, miracles can ensue. So my suggestion at that time was that maybe the translation process was never about the stone, it was always about the hat. And there was something about the hat that allowed Joseph Smith to translate when he was saying it was about the stone that he placed in the hat. And I suggested that perhaps there were some kind of notes that were available to Joseph Smith that he had created, that he had put in the bottom of his hat or made accessible to be in the bottom of the hat that he could look at while he was pretending to look at the stone in the hat. And the notes at the bottom could guide his translation for that session. I'm not saying it was every word of the Book of Mormon that's in the bottom of the hat, but simply notes to help Joseph know where the translation is going and to do it in the correct order. And then for the next session of translation, he could have a new set of notes. Nothing very big, nothing very detailed, but enough to keep Joseph Smith oriented as to the story and what it was he was going to cover in that session. That episode was actually very well received, and it seemed that taking principles of magic, just stage magic, close-up magic, sleight of hand, tricks, had the power to potentially illuminate an otherwise strange and difficult-to-understand process that Joseph Smith was engaged in in the Book of Mormon translation. And I thought, if that one trick can help illuminate this one aspect of Mormonism, perhaps there are other tricks and other principles of magic that can illustrate other aspects of Mormonism. And that is what I conceived of doing as my presentation for Worldwide Thrive Day. The organizers of the event in Seattle were reaching out to me as well as to the other presenters and wanting to create a flyer. They wanted to know what it was I was going to be talking about with a brief description. And at this point, all I have is this basic idea of magic and Mormonism and how the psychology of magic and the principles of magic can help us understand other aspects of Mormonism and Mormon history. And this was a couple of weeks before the actual event. So acting in faith, I thought surely, surely 
there must be some good examples and some good things we can learn under this heading. And so without knowing any of the details of what it was I'd be talking about, I went ahead and said, I'm going to be talking about magic and Mormonism. It was put in the flyer and then the pressure was really on. I had to come up with something that would fit that heading. And as so often happens with me, I go from having really maybe just one incident, one little thing that takes maybe five minutes to present. I've got an hour to fill, by the way, and I don't have any material to fill it with, maybe five minutes at the most. But I started thinking, I started pondering, I started ponderizing, if you will. And I talked to some other people as well. They gave me some good ideas. And I ended up with probably, oh, two to three hours worth of material for a one-hour presentation, which is usually what happens to me. So now I'm in the position of having to edit what it is that I already have so it can fit within a one-hour framework. But here on the podcast, I am not so limited to only one hour. And what I want to do is, even though I'm not able to perform any of the magic tricks for you, and that was part of the, the draw, I thought, it would be unusual, it would be different, hopefully it would be entertaining to have me actually performing some magic tricks and then showing how it is that they are done and connecting those to Mormonism here on this podcast is just audio, so I will not be able to actually perform them for you, but I will describe them for you. So even though I'm able to go into more detail as to what it is I wanted to talk about, on the other hand, I'm not able to actually perform these magic tricks for you much as I would like to. So the first thing I would like to talk with you about is that there are two broad categories of magic tricks. The first category is the magic tricks that rely on a gimmick. In other words, there's some kind of trick involved. There's some kind of gimmick that makes the magic work. And the other kind of magic tricks are those that do not rely on a gimmick. For example, the trick I described about the dime through the table, excuse me, the salt shaker through the table, is a trick that does not rely on any kind of gimmick. It is simply a salt shaker, it is simply a dime, and it is simply a napkin. There's nothing unusual about any of those things. And as a result, they can be examined by the audience, and they will never find the gimmick because there is no gimmick to find. A simple examination of the objects used to perform the trick will not reveal how the trick was done. On the other hand, there are a host of magic tricks that do rely on gimmick. And these are usually the kind of tricks that you might buy at a magic shop. Now there's all kinds of tricks that are gimmicked that you can buy from a magic shop or online as the case may be. But for purposes of illustration, let's bring this down to something very simple. Let's bring it down to card decks. Decks of cards. There are card decks that you can buy at the store. It's a regular deck. There's 52 cards. There's nothing unusual about them. And yet with a regular card deck, a magician can perform a bunch of different tricks. And because they're normal, they can be examined by the audience, they can be shuffled by the audience, and it's not going to affect the magic trick. Because there's nothing the audience can figure out by an examination of the cards as to how you do the trick because it's not based on a gimmick. On the other hand, there are trick decks. One of those would be the Svengali deck. The Svengali deck is the deck that you can flip one way and it shows all different cards, but if you flip it the other way, it shows all cards the same. And frequently, that happens after the spectator has a free selection of any card in the deck. It comes up as a certain card. The card is replaced in the deck and then the deck, which has previously been shown to be all different cards, now becomes the same card and miracle of miracles, the deck has now turned into all the same card that was randomly selected by the spectator. It's a fantastic trick. It's a mind-blowing trick, but it's also a trick that is based upon a gimmicked deck. The gimmick is relatively simple. Of course, you have 26 cards that are different and 26 cards that are all the same. 
They are arranged in the deck such that you have one normal card and then one card that is the same. Let's just say it's the Ace of Spades, okay? Ace of Spades is the one that's going to be the same in the Svengali deck. It can be any card and frequently is, but we'll just say it's the Ace of Spades. So you have a regular card, then you have an Ace of Spades, then you have another regular card, and then you have another Ace of Spades. Then you have a regular card and an Ace of Spades and so forth through the deck. There's 26 regular cards and 26 Aces of Spades. In addition to that, the Aces of Spades are all shaved at one end, almost imperceptibly, but they are slightly shorter than the regular cards. And all of the aces of spades are slightly shorter than the regular cards. And what that means is if you square them up by hitting them on the table and making sure that they are even on the bottom, then if you flip the cards one direction, it will show all different cards. But if you turn the deck over and flip it in the other direction, it will show all aces of spades. I hope I'm not revealing too much here, but that is how a Svengali deck works. And so because that's how a Svengali deck works, it can perform incredible feats of magic that you could not perform with a regular deck of cards. On the other hand, you cannot let the audience look at or handle a Svengali deck. Because if they do, they will immediately see that you've got an ace of spades every other card. Now there are some tricks that are gimmicked, but are gimmicked in such a way as to be imperceptible to an audience member who examines them. We're gonna set those to the side right now because we don't need to talk about those. But mainly you've got tricks or decks that are not gimmicked and tricks or decks that are gimmicked. So the ones that are not gimmicked can be handed out to the audience to examine. Those that are gimmicked cannot be handed out to the audience to examine. And once you realize that, then you understand that when any magician is performing a trick, as a general rule, if the magician has a deck of cards and he hands them out to a member of the audience to shuffle and to examine, then you immediately know that you don't have to shuffle or examine those cards because there's nothing to be found. The very fact that the magician is making them available to be examined is a strong indicator that there's nothing to be found. There's no gimmick in the cards. On the other hand, if a magician does not hand out a card deck or a prop to be examined, then the odds are that there is a gimmick. There is something about this piece of magical apparatus, this card deck in our example, that is gimmicked, and that gimmick will be able to be discovered by the audience member upon examination. So basic rule, if a magician says you can examine something, you don't need to examine it because it's not gimmicked, but if a magician does not allow you to examine something, then it is gimmicked. And there's something about it that if you were allowed to examine it, you would be able to discover and find out what the trick is. Make sense? Okay, going on from there. How does that principle apply to Mormonism? Well, were there any things in early LDS church history that were not allowed to be examined? And the answer is yes, there were a couple of very fundamental things that were not allowed to be freely examined by quote-unquote audience members. And the first thing that comes to mind is the gold plates. The gold plates were not allowed to be freely examined by the audience or by anybody who was involved in the translation. They were either hidden in a box, they were hidden under a napkin or a large cloth, but I think the historical record is pretty clear that they were not simply allowed to be freely examined by anybody who wanted to. And the question arises, why not? Well, from a magical point of view or a magician's point of view, the answer is obvious. The plates were not allowed to be freely examined because they were gimmicked. There was something about the plates that if allowed to be freely examined, the person who is examining them would recognize and see the gimmick and realize how the trick was done. Now, I know that there were witnesses 
to the place. The three witnesses had more of a visionary experience. I'm not sure that that applies to what we're talking about. The eight witnesses, however, are the ones who are described as having a much more average and everyday experience with the plates where they were allowed to pick them up and turn some of the plates and look at the symbols that were carved into the plates. I know that there is some discussion as to what that experience was actually like, but at a minimum, at a minimum, what we can see is that Joseph Smith was not going to allow people to look at the plates except under very controlled and apparently tightly controlled circumstances. And this is sort of like the Svengali deck versus a regular deck of cards. A regular deck of cards, anybody can look at them anytime. It doesn't make any difference. And you can look at them as much as you want. And it's not going to make any difference because there's no gimmick there. The Svengali deck, on the other hand, you cannot hand them out and allow people to look at them as much as they want but you can show them to the audience if you are the one who is controlling the manner in which they are shown. You flip them one way and it shows all different cards. You flip them the other way and it shows all the same cards. But that is the limit to which you can allow the audience to look at the cards themselves. You give the illusion of being able to see the front and the back of all the cards, but actually there's a gimmick there that you're hiding from the audience that you don't want them to see, that you don't want them to discover, and so you can't hand them out for a fair, honest, full examination. And I have a sense that something like that is probably going on in the description that's given by the eight witnesses. And the reason I think that is because other than that one instance where Joseph Smith is apparently showing the plates under a limited, very strictly supervised kind of display, Joseph Smith does not allow anybody to look at the plates other than the story of the eight witnesses. The three witnesses, of course, they're brought down from heaven on a table and the angel Moroni displays them and they hear the voice from heaven. So that's why it's a visionary experience. It's very different from the eight witnesses. But if you look at the eight witnesses and compare it to how everybody else was allowed to handle the plates and look at the plates, which was not at all, that's what makes me tend to think that from a magician's point of view, the plates were obviously gimmicked. They were not regular plates that could withstand ordinary examination. Because if they could be, then they would have been allowed to be examined by anybody who wanted to. They would not have been kept hidden in a box. They would not have been kept hidden under a napkin. So once again, using magic principles, the very fact that Joseph Smith would not allow people to casually examine the plates indicates immediately that the plates are not what they were described as being. And if the plates actually existed, they were gimmicked in some way in order to make them look like something that they actually were not. Let me give you a hypothetical. It is very common in magic and other activities to take a stack of $1 bills and then to put a $100 bill on the top and another $100 bill on the bottom of the stack and then give the impression that you have a stack of $100 bills when actually what you have is a stack of $1 bills but you have a $100 bill on the top and on the bottom. Well, what if Joseph Smith actually created these plates and I'll take a line from Dan Vogel in this, that Joseph Smith created these plates out of tin for the purpose of having a prop to perpetuate the belief that he actually had gold plates. And what if it was very difficult to make an entire stack of gold plates? So he just made a few gold plates, but then he created the idea that the bottom two-thirds of the plates were sealed. And so therefore, there was a seal, a metal seal that was placed around 
the bottom two-thirds of the plates. But actually, the reason that the bottom two-thirds of the plates were sealed was because they were not separate individual plates, all of them with inscriptions on them, because that would be a great deal of work. But instead, it was simply one solid block of metal or some other substance, and then it was simply wrapped around with, and then it was sealed by some means in order to give the impression that this solid block was actually individual plates. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, which means that Joseph Smith, instead of creating, let's say, 100 plates or 50 plates or however many plates it would take for the entire prop, only had to create a few plates, and then underneath that, instead of having additional plates for the final two-thirds, he simply has a solid block that is sealed so that he could represent this as being individual plates, but they cannot be accessed for examination because of the seal. Now, something like that might appear convincing if the spectator is given a relatively brief glance at it. But a thorough examination would show that the bottom two-thirds are not made out of individual plates, but simply one solid block. This type of prop could be shown briefly to an audience, but it could not be allowed to be examined with any degree of thoroughness. Because once again, if you examine it thoroughly, then you see what the gimmick is. But it wasn't just the plates that could not be observed. There was also something about the seer stone, and I believe the seer stone as it was placed in the hat, that could not be done by anybody other than Joseph Smith. In fact, it's in Mosiah chapter 8 verse 13 that we read one of these warnings about anybody who would look for things in the seer stone that they were not commanded to look for. And I'm just going to read the part of this verse that relates to what it is I'm talking about. And this is from Mosiah chapter 8, verse 13. And the things are called interpreters. Now those are the seer stones, right? Or perhaps even the singular seer stone. And the things are called interpreters. And no man can look in them except he be commanded, lest he should look for that he ought not, and he should perish. So we've got this idea of Joseph's Messiah stone in his hat, and the warning that comes in Mosiah saying, you can't look into the seer stone unless you are commanded, presumably by God, to look into the seer stone. And if you look for something that you ought not to look for, in other words, if you're not commanded by God to look into the seer stone in the hat, then you will perish. God will strike you dead. So a magician looking at this would say, well, there must be something about the seer stone or looking into the seer stone in the hat that would reveal the gimmick and therefore the divine warning to not do so under penalty of death. Now, magicians usually don't go that far when they're doing a trick for an audience. They don't bring out a Svengali deck and say, okay, I could let you examine this, but if you did, then God would strike you dead. <laughs> no, that would be a little too obvious. It's already obvious enough when you're using a deck that you don't allow the audience to examine. We already know it's gimmick. Thank you. You don't have to throw on top that you would let us examine it, but if we did examine it, God would strike us dead. Yeah, that would be enough to signal even the dimmest among the audience that this is obviously a trick deck. And you're just using divine displeasure as an excuse for not allowing us to examine it. And it's funny that we don't or at least I didn't as a true believing Mormon for many, many years, I never really put two and two together. I did not apply my magic training to my religious beliefs. Because if I had, I would have seen a warning that God will strike you dead if you examine this particular prop as an immediate evidence that the prop itself is gimmicked. The prop is not what it appears to be. And even though I may not be able to tell you exactly how the trick is done, the fact that I cannot examine it tells me immediately that there is a trick 
and it is being concealed from me, and if I could examine the prop, I would figure out the trick for myself. In the same way, the fact that the ordinary person could not examine the gold plates, the ordinary person could not look at the seer stone in Joseph Smith's hat, should be an immediate sign that there were gimmicks involved with both and an examination of either would reveal what the gimmick was. Okay, now let me go on to a little magical principle called the switch, which is designed to take care of this problem. Now the switch is this. If you want to use a Svengali deck in your routine, the idea is that you don't start out with the Svengali deck because it's something that cannot be examined by the audience. Instead, you begin your magic routine by using a regular deck of cards and you have a few tricks that you can perform using a regular deck. You bring out the deck, it's examined by the audience because it's a regular deck of cards, right? You perform a couple of tricks with the regular deck, you put it back in its card case, and then you put it in your pocket. At some point thereafter, you say, oh, okay, well, I'll show you a few more tricks since you're such a great audience. You reach into your pocket, but you don't pull out the regular deck that you used initially. Instead, you pull out the Svengali deck, which exactly matches the regular deck that you had been using. It's the same color on the back. It's the same design on the back. It's in an identical card case. So you bring out the Svengali deck from the same pocket as if it were the card deck that you had been using shortly before and which the audience has already examined. So this is the switch. You go from using a regular deck to using a trick deck and you do it in such a way to make the audience think that you're still using the original regular deck. So now the audience thinks they've already examined the card deck that you have produced from your pocket and you proceed to do some amazing tricks that you probably would never be able to do with a regular card deck. So what on earth does this idea of a switch have to do with Mormonism and early church history? Well, one such incident happened with Martin Harris when he was serving as scribe for the translation or dictation of the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon because Martin Harris thought he would do his own switch with Joseph Smith. And the switch was not with the deck of cards. It was with the seer stone that Joseph Smith was using in order to translate. Now, when you're using a deck of cards and switching out a deck of cards, it is, of course, critical that the card deck you are switching out is identical to the card deck that you remove from your pocket to begin performing tricks with the gimmicked deck, the Svengali deck in our example. It has to be the same color back. It has to be the same design back. It has to be the same size of cards. You can't put a bridge size deck in your pocket and pull out a poker size deck and hope that nobody will notice. Once again, it is critical that the two decks, the one being switched in and the one being switched out, are identical. Now, Martin Harris, when he's switching out Joseph Smith's rock, is not switching out an identical rock for Joseph Smith's rock. Martin Harris, when they were out skipping stones down by the stream, according to the story, found a rock that he thought looked similar to Joseph Smith's seer stone. Martin Harris may have even thought it looked so similar to Joseph Smith's seer stone that Joseph Smith would not notice the switch. The problem, I think, is that this seer stone that Joseph Smith was using was not just a rock that he picked up the day before. Instead, this is something that was very special to him, very important to him. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with every square centimeter of that stone. Its size, its shape, the banded jasper 
design on it. And so even if Martin Harris thought he found a rock that looked like Joseph Smith's seer stone, it is almost certain that Joseph Smith would immediately detect the difference between the two stones, realize that Martin Harris was testing him, and then perhaps playing into that test by remarking with the switched seer stone that Martin Harris had substituted and that Joseph Smith then put in his hat, that Joseph Smith puts his face over the hat, recognizing it is not his seer stone, and then claims that he can see nothing, all is as dark as Egypt, I believe the quote is. It's sort of like when I was a little kid in Waco, Texas, and I think, if I'm recalling this correctly, my parents or my mom had gotten me and my other brothers a bunny for Easter, and we kept my bunny out in a little rabbit hutch in the backyard. Well, as fate would have it when I was away at school, probably in first or third grade, the bunny died, and my mom went out, saw the bunny was dead, and wanted to save me the trauma of coming home to find out that my bunny was dead, so she went to the pet store. She tried to find a bunny that matched the dead bunny and got one that was as close as she could and brought it home and put it in the hutch, hoping I would not tell the difference. Well, I went out to the yard. By the way, I don't remember this independently. I'm just going based off what my mom told me when I got older. But as she tells the story, I went out to the backyard to visit my bunny and I came running in and I was all excited. And of course, she's really wondering if I'm going to notice the difference. And I had, but I was very excited saying, guess what, mom, guess what? My bunny had a baby. So this is the kind of thing that can happen when you try and make a switch, but the switch is not exact. Of course, the person who knows what the original item looks like, in my case, the bunny, in Joseph Smith's case, the seer stone, and when somebody else, for whatever reason, substitutes another bunny that is similar but not absolutely identical, of course, even a seven-year-old Radio Free Mormon is going to be able to tell the difference. And I expect that a 21-year-old Joseph Smith would be able to tell the difference when Martin Harris switched out a different rock for his seer stone. Now I want to talk about a different aspect of magic. It's the secret of magic. For every magic trick that I perform or that any magician performs, there is going to be a secret. There is going to be something about that trick that I know that the audience doesn't know. And that is the secret that I am going to try to keep from the audience in order to make the magic look magical. If the audience knows the secret, it will no longer look magical because they will see through the gimmick and understand that this is simply a trick. And once the audience knows the trick, they can never go back to looking at the same effect as magical. Instead, they will simply see the trick. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Everybody looks at the great and powerful Oz from one angle and is overawed by this being. But once Toto pulls back the curtain and you see the man behind the curtain working the levers, you have a different perspective all of a sudden. You know how the trick works and you no longer see it as magical or supernatural. The other point on this is that even if the curtain is closed again and you can't see the man behind the curtain anymore, once having seen him, even if he is closed off again behind the curtain, you can still never forget the fact that you saw the man behind the curtain and you're never going to go back to the point where you look at this great projection of Oz, the great and powerful, the same way again. Once the bell has been rung, it can't be unrung. Once the genie is out of the bottle, it is a difficult thing to get it back inside. And once you have seen behind the supernatural presentations of events in early church history as correlated, systematized, and even whitewashed as the church presents it, once you see behind that, 
and you see the other side of the story, and you see that maybe it wasn't miraculous after all, and in fact, the supernatural probably wasn't involved. Once you know the secret to those events, you cannot go back to seeing them as supernatural. Any more than Dorothy and her three companions could go back to seeing Oz the Great and Powerful as supernatural after they had seen Frank Morgan working the levers behind the curtain. But back to this power of the secret. There is power in secret knowledge. And in magic, it's generally for entertainment purposes. But sometimes people take it beyond entertainment purposes and use the secrets involved in magic tricks in order to present themselves to their audience as actually having supernatural powers and using it frequently in a way to make money for themselves often out of the credulity and grief of their audience. This is the kind of abuse of magic that Houdini campaigned and crusaded against. In the latter part of his career, it is also this kind of abuse of magic that James Randi, also known as the Amazing Randi, crusaded against in the latter part of his career. Because even though a magician is going to present as doing something amazing, something supernatural, something incredible, there is always a tacit understanding between the magician and the audience that it is all for show, that there's really a gimmick, there's really a secret here. It's just that the audience doesn't know it and the magician does. Now, the power in the secret is referenced in the book of Moses. And after Cain kills his brother, you will recall that he identifies himself with the new name of Master Mahan and says, For I am the master of the great secret, whereby I may murder and get gain. It is the possession of the secret that gives power, not necessarily the nature of the secret itself. Now, obviously, some secrets are more powerful or important than others. For instance, knowing the secret relating to the codes in the nuclear football is a much more important secret than knowing how to use a Svengali deck to perform tricks for your friends. But whether it is big or small, it is the secret that gives the power. If everybody knows a secret, it has no more power. It is only when a secret is kept to a limited group of people and other people are excluded from knowing the secret for one reason or another that the secret gives power to the people in possession of it. We're very familiar with this idea of secrecy in the LDS church. There is an entire culture of secrecy in the LDS church and I may do a podcast on that at some point in the future. But for right now, we'll just talk about the ordinances of the temple. We know that what happens in the temple is secret. And as Elder Bednar has recently reminded us, it is actually the tokens, the names, the signs that are guarded with vows of secrecy. There are no more penalties performed in the temple since 1990, but the vow of secrecy and the importance of that vow are still underscored in the LDS temple today. And it was very common for people such as myself when talking to non-members and being questioned about why everything was secret in the LDS temple to respond with this meme, it's not secret, it's sacred. And I myself am probably guilty of having said that on a number of occasions. I say guilty because really that's a distinction without a difference. It is secret. The people who go to the temple are put under a vow of secrecy to not reveal certain aspects of the temple endowment. Now, certainly, observant temple goers believe that what happens inside the temple is also sacred. But to say it's not secret, it's sacred, seems to be begging the question. 
And so I came to the point in my life as an active, observant Mormon where I stopped saying, it's not secret, it's sacred, to saying something else that I felt better represented the actuality of the situation. And what I said was, it's secret because it's sacred. And that expression seemed to encompass the obvious fact that it is secret. When you say it's not secret, it's sacred. You're saying it's not secret. Well, obviously it's secret. So it's secret because it's sacred seemed to be more accurate to me. But even more recently in the last few years, I began to realize that my new phrase, it's secret because it's sacred, may itself not have fully explained what is going on with the nature of secrecy in the LDS temple. And I have finally hit on a third permutation of that expression. The first was, it's not secret, it's sacred. The second was, it's secret because it's sacred. And the third one that I've landed on is, it's sacred because it's secret. So the second one was, it's secret because it's sacred. The third one now is, it's sacred because it's secret. And what I'm trying to get at there is the very act of making something a secret imbues it with an aura of sacredness. Let me give you an obvious example. The new name that patrons to the temple, first-time temple goers to get their endowment, receive a new name. And this is certainly something that is to be kept secret. The person who receives it makes a vow that they will never reveal their new name except at one location in the temple where it's permitted, but never outside the temple and never anywhere in the temple except at one certain location, which is, of course, the veil. So we know we receive a new name, we know we're put under a vow of secrecy, and it is that secrecy that gives it the aura of sacredness. And that is why it is so jarring to many people who have been to the temple to find out that their new name is really not unique to them. In fact, every single person who's going through the temple that day is receiving the same new name. There is a list of new names. It is a finite list. There are male names and there are female names. And every day at the temple, they are using the same male name for all the males going through the temple for the first time. And there is also a female name for all the women who are going through the temple for the first time. And the following day, it will change to the next name on the list, both male and female, and the day after that, and so forth, such that if anybody ever forgets what their new name is, they can contact the temple with the date that they receive their endowment, and then the temple can look it up as to what new name was being used that day and can restore that new name to the memory of the forgetful temple patron. So what I'm getting at here is that if you know all of this about the new name and the different lists and the fact that one name is used for everybody who goes to the temple on a given day, then you realize it's not sacred at all. It's very commonplace. Lots of people have this name. There's no special symbolism to it. It isn't specific to you. It's not actually the name that you were known by in the pre-mortal existence, which is a common interpretation among Latter-day Saints. I held that interpretation for a while. But this very common name then becomes sacred by virtue of the fact that the person is placed under an oath of secrecy not to reveal it to anybody else. So this is getting back to this idea of it's sacred because it's secret. 
This may be similar even to patriarchal blessings because although all youth are encouraged to receive a patriarchal blessing, and if they don't get it when they're a youth and maybe later on, but everybody's supposed to get a patriarchal blessing in this church, nevertheless, everyone is encouraged to not share their patriarchal blessing with anyone else. Now, it's possible that there may be a pragmatic purpose for that, that all the patriarchal blessings that are coming through the same patriarch in the same stake may bear a great deal of similarity one to another. And if you share your patriarchal blessing with someone else who received their patriarchal blessing from the same patriarch, the curtain may be drawn back a bit and you may see that the revelation that you received looks a lot like a revelation that was received by somebody else through the same patriarch. But additionally, the fact that a person is not supposed to share their patriarchal blessing with anybody else also tends to imbue the patriarchal blessing with an added degree of sacredness, simply by virtue of the fact that we are to keep them secret. In Mormonism, this culture of secrecy even extends to callings. When we are called to a position, and especially if it's a leadership position, we are supposed to keep that calling secret from everybody else. And the first time everybody is supposed to hear about it is when it's being announced in sacrament meeting that so-and-so has been extended this calling of whatever the calling may be. And now all in favor, raise your right hand. Any opposed will ignore you. The funny thing about this is that frequently, I'm sure we've all had this experience of somebody in the ward saying that they knew who the new bishop or whoever was going to be before the bishop was called. I had a friend who was a member of the stake presidency at one time, so he was definitely in positions of leadership in the local stake. This was after he had left the stake presidency, been released from the stake presidency, and now he and I were team teaching a missionary preparation class. This is a number of years ago. And I remember my friend was telling the story about how he knew that this certain bishop was going to be called as bishop even before the bishop was called. And a perspicacious member of the class raised her hand and asked my friend if these callings are supposed to be kept secret until they're announced to the congregation for a sustaining vote. Why is the Holy Ghost telling you who's going to be the next bishop? I had never heard that question before. I had never considered that question before, but I thought it was an excellent question and glad that it was being asked to my friend and not to me. Well, my friend, without missing a beat, says, because the Holy Ghost is a blabbermouth. And I laughed. Everybody else laughed. It was a good line. But unfortunately, it kind of dodged around the actual question, which is, if this is supposed to be so secret, how come the Holy Ghost is telling certain select and inspired individuals about the secret in advance. Well, let's get back to principles of magic as they involve secrets. Now, I have read a lot of magic books in my life. Yes, I've read a few magic books and I went to a pretty good magic school. (laughs) And I'm certainly not a dodo. But in the preface or introduction to all magic books, they frequently have a list of rules that magicians should follow. And rule number one is usually practice, practice, practice. But rule number two, way up there on the list is never reveal the secret to the audience. And the second commandment is like unto it, never perform the same magic trick twice for the same audience. And the reason why that is like unto it is because if you perform the same trick twice for the same audience, the odds go way up that they'll figure out how you did it because they know what happens, they know where it's going, and therefore they're on the lookout to see how it's done. And every magician, including yours truly, has had the common experience of performing a trick, wowing a spectator, and having that spectator ask or even beg or plead, 
tell me how it's done. Please tell me how that's done. And the good, righteous <laughs> magician will never reveal the secret, but will simply say when asked, how did you do that? Oh, very well, thank you. Or it's magic. Or I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Any response will do as long as it's not actually revealing the secret. And there's a number of reasons for this. And some of them are very simple. First off, obviously, we don't want to be revealing the magic tricks because this is a fraternity, a group, a union, a guild of magicians, and we keep our secrets safe. The second reason is very interesting psychologically because frequently what happens is if a person is astonished by a trick, and that's why they want to know how to do it, when you tell them the secret, they are usually disappointed that the secret is so simple. Because believe it or not, the secret to most magic tricks is simple. Often spectators will overly complicate what it must be, far above and beyond what the actual secret is. But with the result that when you tell a spectator who's been astonished by a trick how simple the secret is, frequently they may be upset and angry with themselves for being fooled by such a simple ploy. And sometimes, believe it or not, that anger even gets projected onto the magician for fooling them by such a simple ploy. So ultimately and fundamentally, magicians don't tell the secrets to their tricks because even if the spectator is pleading and pleading to know, the spectator really doesn't want to know. They think they do, but if you tell them what the secret is, they're going to be disappointed. Nobody wins. The spectator doesn't win. The magician doesn't win. Everybody loses when a magician tells the secret to their magic trick. And similarly, when it comes to Mormonism, believe it or not, people do get disappointed and angry when they find out the secret or the gimmick behind the supernatural events that are told as foundational restoration stories within the LDS framework. And yes, believe it or not, people get upset with themselves for being fooled and then frequently turn that anger toward the church for fooling them. It is the most natural thing in the world. Another aspect of this idea of the secret was illustrated when the amazing Randy, James Randy, the magician I've talked to you about, appeared on The Tomorrow Show back in the late 1970s. Now, The Tomorrow Show was a one-hour show that was on after the Tonight Show. So it started up at one o'clock in the morning and I never watched it except sometimes during summer break when I could stay up that late. And this one night I stayed up late to watch James Randi on The Tomorrow Show and the host was Tom Snyder, a very affable fellow, very fun to listen to, very gregarious. And Randy was on the show and I think he was bending spoons to his heart's content in order to show Tom Snyder and the audience that when Uri Geller was bending spoons, he wasn't doing it by supernatural powers. It's just a magic trick that anybody can do. And James Randy was proving that. And I remember Tom Snyder being very impressed by this trick. I mean, I was impressed by it too. I have no idea how he did it. He was an amazing magician. But Tom Snyder going, tell me how you did that. And of course, Randy responds with, very well, thank you. But Tom Snyder was not going to be put off by that. He said, no, no, I really want to know. Look, Randy, I could walk down here any day to the library in downtown Los Angeles and I could pick up a book and I could open it up and I could read about how you did that trick and I could find out for myself. So why don't you just tell me? And Randy responded. He said, you know, Tom, you're absolutely right. The thing is that experience has shown us that most people don't care enough about finding out the secret to go to the library and check out a book and find out for themselves. Does this sound at all similar to Mormonism? It has certainly been the case for many decades and even is the case now, I think, that the majority of active, observant Latter-day Saints 
who believe in the reality and the divinity of the foundational events of Mormonism and even of the current events in Mormonism could find out the secret if they wanted to go to the library or even on the internet now and do the minimal work of looking it up and finding out how the trick was done. What's the other side of the story? What are the complications in this particular supernatural event that can reasonably lead people to doubt whether it was supernatural or divine at all? It's still a simple matter for people to do that, but once again, experience does show that the majority of Latter-day Saints will not take that effort. And indeed, the church warns its members regularly against going to outside sources, in other words, non-church approved sources, to find out about Mormonism and its history. The LDS Church wants you to trust them, to simply take their word for it, to rely on the materials that they produce in order to give you the full story, and do their very best to warn you against looking at any other source that gives you a different perspective. And by the way, once again, that should be a red flashing neon sign telling us that the church is very concerned about its members looking at non-church approved sources. What was it that Elder Oak said in Chicago a couple of years ago? Research is not the answer. And if the church is that concerned or any organization is that concerned about you looking at the other side of the coin and what other people have to say about it, then maybe, just maybe, the church is not as secure in its position and in its truth claims as it presents, but actually is so insecure that they want you to read no other sources than the ones they produce and not look at anybody else's perspective, research, podcast, or books. And so we can see that there is power in the secret and the LDS church is doing everything it can to keep people from finding out the secret about church history, the secret about current church leadership, and pretty much the secret about everything the church has done between its founding and today, that it is claimed to be divine, supernatural, or revealed from heaven. Once you see what church leaders are doing and how they are doing it, You can never go back to simply believing it is magic again. Well, as it turns out, I have got way more material to go through on this subject of magic and Mormonism. There are a lot of thoughts that came to me on this subject, and I want to share them with you, but I'll be sharing the rest of them with you in a second part to this podcast. In the meantime, I want to thank all of my listeners who have made a donation to Radio Free Mormon. I want to encourage right now all of the listeners who have not yet made a donation to go to RadioFreeMormon.org, click the donate button, and make a donation today. Hopefully a recurring monthly donation. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will literally keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. I look forward to presenting part two where I have some other really kind of remarkable insights and connections to make between the practice of magic and the practice of Mormonism. Thanks for listening. That's all for tonight. This is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air. Join us, leave your filter flower. Join us, leave your cheese to sour. Journey through
and bloody Join us, see it where everybody can see We've got magic to do Just for you We've got miracle plays to play We've got parts to perform Parts to war Kings and kings Ha, 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 ha. 